If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How can you tackle the history of the whole world in just one volume? Well, this week sees the publication of the latest book from the best-selling historian and author Simon Seabag Montefiore. And it's his most ambitious yet – covering the entire history of the world, but through the prism of families and dynasties. Spanning centuries, continents and cultures, Simon charts histories big and small, revealing a rich and colourful cast of characters through the one thing we all have in common, our family. Simon spoke to Rob Attar. Several histories of the world have been written before, but yours is different in it that it's framed through families. And I was interested to know why you've chosen this approach. There are many histories of the world, as you know, and, you know, it's, it's in fact, I mean, world history has become a, a kind of industry. There's literally a world history um, published by every, every publishing house every sort of six months at the moment. So the, 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 the question is how to do world history differently. And when I was asked to do this world history, I, I thought to myself, what is the essence of world history and what is the essence of biography? And of course, world history is about huge span of ideas and trends and technologies and trade while biography which which is a genre that i love and which you know really i've kind of most of my books fit into that category is really intimate and i began to think was there a way to um avoid the distance that goes with most um and attachment that goes with most um world histories and achieve some of the um, some of the, some of the intimacy and sort of grittiness and character that you see in biographies, and it just occurred to me that um, family was the way to do that. It's the one uh, it's, it's one it's the one unit of, of human life that, of course, is universal um, that is part of all of human life from the beginning to today. Um, family is a fascinating way to see the world because they change all the time. Political families are a very good way of seeing courts and power centres and the use of power. And, and of course, 
You know, though we though we like to think that our Western democracies are centuries beyond the embarrassing family power, actually, as we constantly see on a daily basis in our politics in America and England, um, it's really a lot of uh, very closely connected to personal connections, character, and of course, family groups. You only had to look at the Trump administration to see that. So it occurred to me it was a really good way of doing of doing world history and. Um, one of the things I also really wanted to do was to make this book completely diverse, completely global. And of course, you know, every every society has family too. And it also gives it also gives a universality to it. It's like every everybody has a family. We're all part of dynasties in a way. And so those are the those were the that was the thinking behind it. And actually, my last two books, Jerusalem, when I started Jerusalem, which is a sort of world history, I I, I try to think how to make it more than just a, a succession of events and sieges and killings and so on and battles. And it occurred to me that families are a very good way to do that because families you have the you have the the, the, the sort of grit of life. You have you have time passing. You have births and deaths and marriages. And so I used it in that. And then of course I did the Romanovs, a family dynasty, but a way of doing. 400 years of the Russian Empire. And so I put, I combine those, both those ideas in this very simple idea, just a world history through families. So as you've said, families are something that have been here since time immemorial. But have you noticed any significant shift in the nature of families in the period that you write about? Families are constantly shifting, just like societies are, and they have, they've shifted enormously. I mean, my book starts in prehistory and anthropology is all about guessing what happens in families in prehistory actually no one really knows but you know we just have to use the sort of very tiny clues that we have but since human history has really started when there've been rec- written records families have changed all the time and of course a roman family or a persian family are very different um from a family today even in our in very recent history i mean this book goes up to covid it ends on the 24th of february this year it ends on the it ends with the with putin's invasion of of ukraine and so even in this short span i mean families have changed a lot everyone thought nuclear families were were, were sort of much less important diminished uh, and and yet you know in covid everyone spent time with their families and family units again became absolutely essential so families are continually changing you know this book covers the 60s when there were huge changes. I call it the, the Great Liberal Reformation when the pill, abortion came in, gay rights, gay marriage. So the whole definition of family has changed, even in my lifetime. Uh, I'm 56. So the, the, you know, the, the last sort of 50 years has seen a radical change. And now it's changing back as well. There's, been a, there's now a kind of backlash against that liberal reformation. And you see in the States, people are going to have to fight again for all those, those rights that will let's call them fam- liberal family rights that were won in the 60s and 70s. So that's the fascinating thing. Families are essential. Everyone has a mother and father somehow, but the nature of those relationships are completely different. And of course, you know, when you look at families, I mean, it used to be, I think when, when I was at school, everyone used to tell you that Hitler and Stalin were monsters because they'd been ill-treated as children. I don't know if you've you heard that in your school days, um, Rob, but you know, it was like you know, Hitler was ill-treated and Stalin was beaten by his drunken father. And of course, the, actually their childhoods were you know, relatively kind of conventional and, and commonplace in, by their periods. 
Um, people did beat their children in the 19th century. Fathers, you know, used physical punishment. Now that's completely unfashionable in the West. So there are all sorts of changes that this book looks at, which is why it's been why it turned out to be a wonderful way of, of looking at human life and covering all of human society. And what has your research uncovered about the role of women through history? Is is that a story of linear progress or actually have there been more twists and turns in the way? Well, there've been that's such a good question, because one of the great things about doing family history, one is I mentioned already was diversity. You know, I've always been fascinated in world history and I've always read histories of African um, kingdoms and Asian and China and Japan and so on, Cambodia. All of these things are in this book. And so, of course, I treat dynasties in Africa, um, whether it's the Mali dynasty or the Zulu dynasty or these things, I treat them all exactly as I would treat a Habsburg, a Romanov, a, a Windsor or Saxe-Coburg, um, or, or for that matter, the way I would treat um, the Nehru family in India or the, the Kennedy family in America, all of whom are in the book. So that's one great thing about using family as a, as a means of looking at world history. But the other one is, of course, women, you know, the, the inclusion of women in history. This is, I, I think, really the, the first world history that is really completely includes women all the way through, because, of course, women are just, you know, women are completely essential, central to family life and to family. But it also looks at women um, in politics. And one of the fascinating things, we think of um, dynasties as terribly, again, as terribly outmoded, an, an irrational way of, um, of of running a country, for example. But of course, one of the things that one of the features of it is women are hugely important. Queen mothers, um, sisters of kings, and throughout this 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 book, you see an amazing phenomenon. Um, you see women who are bought or stolen as slaves, not just in Africa, but really in in places like the Ottoman Empire. Um, and in Mongolia, in the Mongol Empire, Genghis Khan, and in China, women start as enslaved persons who actually become the rulers of these great empires themselves. And we look at those the careers of some of those women in, in great detail. For example, in the Ottoman Empire, um, we have Harem, Harem Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent's wife and queen, and mother of his sons. But even more fascinating, we have Kossem Sultan, who is less well-known in, in the West, who really dominated the Ottoman Empire for 40 years and is one of the most fascinating politicians in world history. And we, I follow her in great detail. So female politics and female power is an absolutely essential part of this, as is the female role in family, which, is, which as we, we mentioned already, has changed a lot. So your book focuses mainly on, I guess you say, big figures from history or certainly people who had a significant impact on history. How far do you think their family background prepared them for their success or influence in life? I think family plays a huge role in people's lives, but so do other so do other features and other experiences. I mean, I think the wars of period, you know, with, starting with Freud, who, by the way, is a big character in the book, as is the whole Freud family. Um, we follow them through through three generations, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, family is a hugely huge influence, and because of Freud and after Freud, we began to we began to assign all characteristics to experiences of childhood and in, and family experiences. I think now we've got a bit more nuanced in that, and there's a bit more understanding that there are other things that influence people. I mean, for example, Genghis Khan was hugely influenced by 
his childhood, the desperate struggles of his childhood. But his early adulthood, when he left the family, were equally influential in teaching him about how to run a court, how to command, how to win loyalty. And these were all things that, that you know, he learned after his fa- time with his family. Uh, you know, the same is, same is true um, with, with, other, with other statesmen. Um, you know, it's not just family, it's also experiences. For example, Louis XIV is a big character in this book. I mean, yes, family life was really important to him. Uh, with royal families, it's one of the fascinating things is family is often, is often improvised. I mean, Louis XIV's most influential, the biggest influence on him was not his father who died when he was very young, but, but Mazarin, Cardinal Mazarin, who was the lover or at least political partner of his mother, Anne of Austria. And so that was a sort of improvised family. But Louis XIV loved Mazarin like a father and, um, and accepted him as the man in command of the kingdom until he died. So there's, there's many, many varieties of what a family is. With the Stalin example, I think his childhood was influential. His upbringing was influential. His time in Georgia was influential. But another huge part of it was his experience in the Russian Civil War, uh, which also was part of what formed him as Stalin. And so, so throughout the, the book, you know, I, don't, I try not to sort of completely, unreservedly just say everyone's formed by their childhood and their families. But family is a is a is a wonderful way of understanding character, um, but it's also a, a wonderful way of looking at power. I mean, in China today, if you look at President Xi and his the other leaders, the they actually call their following, their group, uh, their faction. They call it a lineage or a di- or sort of a dynasty, and oftentimes it does include family. You know, it includes family members in it, but also followers. So. Family is a wonderful way to analyse the workings of political power. Why do you think dynastic rule has been so successful or so popular in so many countries across the world? Yeah, well, that, that's such a good question. I mean, there are so there are, there are a lot of answers to that. I mean, at its most basic, a family family dynasty is you know is just a reflection of all families, and you see you've seen that you know with the death of the queen. I mean, at its most basic, um, we we feel reassured, we feel at home. With we, we we understand the workings of a family. Of course, power families are entirely different. They have other elements in them which normal families don't have. Though Samuel Johnson says in a quote that I quote at the beginning of the book, you know, every every kingdom is a little family, and every little family is a kingdom, and and that's that's part of it too. So I think it's partly a universe, you know, the, the universality of family that we all feel familiar with, and even with royal families, which for much of history, were linked to gods and to divinity, people still saw them as a, as a sort of reflection of, a, of their own families. And that was part of it. Another part of it is continuity, you know, the reassurance of continuity, uh, the reassurance of, of legitimacy um, are two other parts of why families um, have worked so well. Another part of family life and clan life is that you know, in, in, in situations where states f- have failed to deliver justice and protection, people have turned to family, to their clans. We, we've mentioned several times how, of course, in the West, we think we're above this sort of thing. We now have rational states. But when you look at the rest of the world, outside Western Europe and America and North America, um, you, sort of, you see that in places like Afghanistan or Iraq or much of, the, much of Asia, 
people still don't trust states and look to families to provide um, support, patronage, and justice. And so, you know, family family rule is one of the strange things about 2022. Is family rule is advancing on all on all fronts. And there are different types of there are different types of family rule. You know, there's those strange hereditary monarchies like North Korea and Syria and Azerbaijan, where and Equatorial Guinea, where you actually have there's a there's a sort of machinery of a republic, a cosplay republic, a cosplay democracy with elections, but actually uh, power is simply handed over down down a family, which is quite bizarre. Then you have then you have a lot of kind of a lot of um, kingdoms like Saudi Arabia is the you know is the best the best known is the, is the most powerful but you also have places like thailand where you actually have sort of semi semi-absolute or totally absolute monarchies still or brunei still ruling uh which is uh, and in places like thailand you know the king the monarchy has gained power enormously and then in, then you have all these democracies where the, where family family connections are are helpful are reassuring i mean you we've just finished two terms of office in kenya with uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, son of the founder. Um, you know, you have places in like Botswana where the Kama family, they were once the, the royal family of their tribe. Now they, they've been two presidencies. Even and this is true, of course, even in even in the United States, the great the greatest democracy in the world, or in Canada, you've got Trudeau. But all over the world, people are sort of trying to make their sons their successor. So in Uganda, Mosfeni is doing that. Hun Sen in in Cambodia. It's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon. But I think the failure of states and distrust in in regular structures is causing a huge return to family life. So how hard has it been through history for people not from these important families to kind of break into the power circle if there are these strong families with a grip on power? It's always been difficult. And one of the things about this book is, you know, I don't limit it to families. Uh, or, or else I would say, like, everybody has a family. So the family is a, is a way of looking at many individuals who, who didn't rise through families, but are self-made individuals. But one, one big type and one that we're fascinated in is the sort of self-made emperor, the conqueror emperor. And, of course, in this book, we have, you know, we have, we have Caesar, we have Sulla, we have um, Darius the Great in Iran, in Persia. We, we, you know, we have the great, great emperors who founded um, dynasties. And, you know, that's one of the most fascinating phenomena of people who are so successful that they managed to found the dynasty that endures. The biggest families in the book are the Genghis Khan family, where, you know, in, 19, in 1922, the last of Genghis Khan's relative descendants who were ruling in Bukhara, now part of Uzbekistan, were deposed finally. So, you know, Genghis Khan died in 1227, and we we revisit that family um, repeatedly in the book. You know, the other great family that goes through, you know, with incredible long lineage is, of course, the family of the Prophet Muhammad. And, you know, we start with the Quraysh tribe in, 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 in Mecca, who was several generations before the Prophet. And then we follow the Prophet and all the, through all the different dynasties that are descended from him, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Fatimids. And, and you know, we have families today, the Hashemite family of Jordan, which at various times provided kings of Syria and the Hejaz and Iraq, um, are direct descendants of the Prophet. 
So that's what 1,500 years of one family is part of this story. Um, so there are ways to break into to break into um, family rule and to, to set up empires and set up dynasties. And the way to do that is to conquer, is to be incredibly successful as Napoleon. You know, Napoleon is one of the most recent examples of that. And, you know, there are three Napoleons in the book, apart from all his brothers, of course. There's Napoleon, there's Napoleon II, who was his son, also known as the King of Rome, who was the son of his second second wife, Mary Louise, um, who was one of the Habsburgs. And after his death, after Napoleon's fall, he went back to be brought up in Vienna. One of the strangest things is that Hitler was obsessed with this, the Duke of Reichstadt, Napoleon II. And when he when he conquered France in 1940, he arranged for the return of the body to Paris, which is one of those strange details of dynastic. For some reason, Hitler was was fascinated by that story. And then, of course, you've got Napoleon III, the, the inventor of modern democracy or modern a, a sort of plebiscitary democracy, um, who's a fascinating character, who's a big character in the book. Um, so the Napoleons really, the Napoleon dynasty really covers you know, 70 70 years of um, European history. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It poisons everything. Um, It it ruins families and it leads to unspeakable decisions that have to be made. So families, families are kind of ruined by power. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So as you've already shown through this conversation, your book covers a lot of the most famous figures in world history. Did writing about them in this fashion offer you a new perspective on any of them? Yeah, I mean, on all of them, really, because... The, the family analysis also works well, even on self-made people who actually were clearly... I mean, when you look at Hitler and Stalin, for example, they are deliberately anti-family figures. I mean, Hitler continually said, you know, I, I, I'm not going to marry. I'm married to the Reich, to the fatherland. And yet when you look at his childhood and you go and look at his father, Aloys Heidler, which is where, where we start the story of Hitler, you know, you see fascinatingly Hitler's upbringing with with Heidler, who was a kind of pretty rum character, but obsessed with his status within the, the Habsburgs bureaucracy as an inspector of, of customs, which was quite a high position in the middle ranks, of course, of, of the bureaucracy. And um, when you look at when you look at his background, it's fascinating to see that though Hitler claimed it was terribly sort of difficult and he sort of came from nothing, actually he had an incredibly kind of um, indulged upbringing. And the problem with him is not too little love, but perhaps too much love. One thing you have in common in all these people, of course, is mothers. This is this is a book. If the, one way to look at this book is it's a book about mothers, and there are mothers all the way through it, and di- playing different roles, um, giving giving people like Napoleon and Hitler the 
the feeling of being an invincible conqueror, of being able to take everything. And I also think maternal relationships to, you know, teach these people how to manage people and in some ways how to be people persons. So that's part of it. Um, but the family, yeah, the family life of all these characters is very interesting and intrinsic to their to their rise and to their characters. So, so yeah, I mean, obviously this book is full of these kind of incredibly famous characters. We've got Attila and Caesar and Napoleon and and um, Genghis Khan and Muhammad and so on. But we also have it's also filled with people that I think most people won't have heard of. That's been the great joy of this book. Is that of course I've covered all the great powers, the United States and Russia and Peter the Great and and J.F. Kennedy and Lincoln. But it's also, I think, full of countries that people don't know much about. And we've got, we cover empires in here that I think the average reader won't won't know about. And we've got the Afghan empire. You know, one always thinks, for example, of Afghanistan as being conquered by the British and so on. But actually, Afghanistan at one point conquered the whole of Persia and another point conquered much of India. Just before the British did, just before Clive of India, the, the Afghans conquered um western india and delhi and so on so that's just a fascinating example of an empire that people won't have heard of and we cover all sorts of the Khmer empire the omani empire the comanche empire in north america and so i think there's a lot in here that people don't know but they'll they'll find an unusual approach to the people that they do and so of those lesser-known dynasties, were there any particular individuals that really stood out for you when you were writing about them? Well, I think Shah Durrani in the Afghan Empire is one of the most fascinating characters because um, Ahmad Durrani, he, he, was, he was a bodyguard to Nadir Shah, the self-made founder of his own dynasty, a, a sort of chieftain um, who became Shah of Iran and then took Delhi. And he was assisted by um, Afghan bodyguards, and the chief of these was Shah Ahmad Durrani, who, on the assassination of Nadir Shah, rode back to Afghanistan and conquered Afghanistan, really created the country of Afghanistan. This is in the mid-18th century, same time as Frederick the Great. And he, he then invaded India several times. I think he had six invasions of India, and really just, it, was, it was him... You know, above all, who destroyed the Mughal Empire. And so he's a very fascinating character um, whose descendants also played a role in, in later English disasters in Afghanistan. And another fascinating character, Said the Great, the founder of the Amani Empire. And Amman, which is, of course, in South Arabia, the, the same family that still rules today, actually conquered East Africa all the way down East Africa, so including Kenya, Tanzania, and even 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 a couple of parts of Mozambique and Zanzibar, and they became a huge slave trading and slave hunting uh, sort of dynasty, and and it, which is a fascinating fascinating story. And of course, in the end, the two sultanates were divided. So one son took the African territories and one son kept Amman and that part of it still rules Amman today which is fascinating the same dynasty but in in some ways they started the the scramble for Africa you know they they unleashed these slave traders who who uh, marched right into Central Africa to Congo to, to Uganda and who who really kind of laid waste to Central Africa 
in a terrible way and, and raise hundreds of thousands of slaves. So that is a different slave trade, a different empire. And this is an Arab empire in Africa that I think most people don't know about today. And did you notice any commonalities between the dynasties that had been really successful in the world stage? There are huge things in common um, with them, of course, but there are different approaches. I mean, there are two approaches to political power. You either have a strict um, hereditary descent with rules, which means that um, successions are pretty orderly, as we have in this country today, for example. You know, everyone knows the succession, and that's a great test of a political system. But the problem with it is, if it's an absolute monarchy, and you have someone who's not capable of ruling, you know, as we can think of many examples in English history and British history, but in the Ottoman and Persian and Eastern empires, and in China, there's no rule, and they choose the most able son um, to, to rule, which means you can have a series of ferociously efficient administrators and conquerors ruling these dynasties, running these dynasties and succeeding to the throne. But in the end, they too run out of steam. And, you know, I think to be an absolute monarch is, incredi- is incredibly difficult task. You've basically got to be good at everything. And that's pretty hard to deliver. So there are different approaches to, to, to dynasty as there are different approaches to family. Most families have appalling rivalries between brothers and parents and fathers and sons, which is you know, familiar to, to you know, ordinary families and also to royal families. So there's, there's huge commonalities too. Um, uh, you know, one of them is the mother's relationship with sons, which is hugely important throughout the book. But families, you know, change. One of the interesting things is families in different cultures and different kingdoms change all the time. That's one of the that's one of the fun things about taking family as a way of looking at looking at both you know households, ordinary households, but also kingdoms and and republics as well. Um, you know, America, the great the greatest republic of in the world, is actually you know been ruled by a series of these family connections. Um, you know, the, the Roosevelts, the Kennedys, the Bushes are all the Trumps are all big families in the book. And we, for example, with, with Trump, we follow the Trump family from when they leave um, Bavaria, the very end of the 19th century, uh, when, when his grandfather becomes a brothel keeper and in a, in a um, gold rush town and um, all the way to when to the presidency. And that's one of the fun things of, of following families. And I suppose it's fair to say that being in power puts additional pressure on families. The, the rivalries, it, it makes everything far more intense, I imagine. It poisons everything. Um, it, it ruins families and it leads to unspeakable decisions that have to be made. So families families are kind of ruined by power. Power is utterly corrosive because it's the opposite. Power is the opposite to love. And families, political families, you know, I mean, the most recent example, which is followed close in the book, is the Kim family of North Korea. You know, when when Kim Jong-un takes power, you know, he kills his uncle. Um, he has his half-brother assassinated. And um, you see that throughout the book. And, you know, there, in, in the book, there are many examples of mothers having to kill or overthrow their sons and imprison them. So, yeah, I mean, that's very much a theme of this is, is you know, is the poisonous nature of family rivalry. But then, of course, ordinary families have that, too. And um, though there are lots of loving families, we all know lots of families where, where relations between them, even when there isn't the prize of an empire or a kingdom to fight for, where they've all fallen out and hate each other. 
with the passionate poison of intimacy. And has writing this book made you reflect at all on your own family background? Yeah, I mean, writing this book, I mean, first of all, I should say, you know, obviously, it's it's an insanely but delightfully challenging book. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. I found writing all my big history books really hard to do. And, you know, I sweat blood to make them both kind of, you know, the, the scholarship accurate, but but readable by anybody. And I've tried to do that with this. The whole point about this world history is that I, I hope that anybody can read it. And, you know, the, the, the family approach means that you can cover really obscure places and people understand it. And I hope the family makes it accessible. Um, but of course, you know, there are, there are many business families in this book as well. You know, there were the Rothschilds, the Fords, um, the Fuggers. Um, and, it, and we, and, you know, we, 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 we follow um, and Bill Gates and we follow, you know, right up to the present time, we follow business. And so the Rothschilds and my own family, the Montefiores, who are a sort of sub Rothschild, are are part of the a part of the story, and I've you know I've put them in the book in a very limited way since they're very unimportant. But um, I've also put you know some of my family, uh, my, not the Montefiore family, but my mother's family also play a part in in this book because when they when there are pogroms and they were in pogroms in Russia and they left in just before nineteen oh four around nineteen oh four, you know I just have a footnote saying on you know the author's family are, were part of this, but. There are a lot of interesting families in this book. I mean, not ju- not just my own, but we've even got the Kardashians in here, believe it or not. And then if you could have been in any of the families you've written about in the book, who would you have chosen? Oh, that's a very good question. I'll tell you what, I- I'm a writer, of course, and there are lots of writers, writer families in this book. Um, some of them some of them suffered terrible um, tortures and mutilations and punishments for writing. But I think one of the great families is the Dumas family. Alexander Dumas, um, the the author of the, the, the Three Musketeers and the Count of Monte Cristo, he's a character in this book. And there are three generations of that family. The, the father was a mixed race general of Napoleon's army, who um, was an amazing character, and and his son was the was that was was the famous novelist who was also a librarian to Louis Philippe. Uh, the Duke of Orleans, who who was the French king, and then his son wrote the Dama Camellia, and um, is in is in sort of eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies Paris. So there's a family that I can identify with as a writer, and of course, yes, I mean they, they they have to be the most successful literary family in history, and so I'd love to have been Alexander Dumas and write those novels. Um, who wouldn't? Um, okay, Simon, I think I've kind of been through the main things I was going to ask you. Is there anything in particular that you think I should have brought up that I haven't done? I think it's just fun to say. I, I, I wrote this in um, lockdown and um, the idea of the book came to me you know, shortly before lockdown. And the way, the way it turned out was just before I started to write it, I, I thought like, I've got to go to Egypt. I've never been to Egypt. And you can't really write a world history without Egypt. So in December... I went off to Egypt, and Egypt plays a part in the in the because obviously we have ancient Egypt, the pharaohs, then we got the Ptolemies, and you know Caesar and Cleopatra, and then you know you have Mehmet Ali, Muhammad Ali, the great ruler, the, you know really the greatest Arab ruler of modern times, um, who ruled Egypt and almost conquered the Ottoman Empire, and it goes and then the book goes right up to Nasser and today, Al Sisi. So Egypt keep up. So I did Egypt. And then when I came back, suddenly we read about this, this COVID. And I started the book 
on the first day of lockdown that March. And so I wrote the whole book in lockdown and finished it at the, basically as we came out of that. So actually it was the perfect way to write this book because the book was so challenging. There were times when I just wasn't sure, sure I could get to do it or it was just so daunting. But also it's been the most satisfying thing I've ever done. And if I hadn't been for lockdown, I don't think I'd ever have been able to write it. So this is it. And then, of course, I was planning to finish it on the day that the first person died of COVID. And when Putin invaded Ukraine, I realized that was completely world changing. And so and also, you know, my whole life has been most of my life has been spent writing about Russia and Ukraine anyway. So I and there's a lot of Ukraine and Zelensky and Putin are big characters in the book. And so I finished it on the day of Putin's invasion. That was Simon Seabag Montefiore. The World, A Family History is out tomorrow, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.